0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Dr. Dwayne Roller is back on the show today on April 11th of this year, so 2021. An episode was published with Dr. Roller that focused on Cleopatra Selene II's life Cleopatra Selene II was the daughter of Cleopatra VII of Egypt and Mark Antony of Rome, and Cleopatra Selene was married to Juba II, who was the king of Mauritania. So in the episode today, Dr. Roller is going to speak more about what's known of Juba's life, including the early period of his life, his adulthood and reign as king of Mauritania, and the later period of his life. Dr. Roller is Professor Emeritus of Classics at The Ohio State University, based in the U.S. He's written over 200 scholarly articles in 14 books. A couple books that he's author of that are germane to this conversation. The first one, The World of Juba II and Cleopatra Cellini, Royal Scholarship on Rome's African Frontier, which was published by Routledge. And another one, Cleopatra's Daughter and Other Royal Women of the Augustan Era, which was published by Oxford University Press. Welcome back on the show, Dwayne.
1: Uh, it's very nice to be here. Thank you for having me back.
0: All right. So, uh, an opening question, Dwayne. Probably a similar question to what I asked uh, in the last time we chatted, as in terms of the structure of the question. Um, can you, uh, in a in a to create sufficient background and context, can you share who Juba II was? Yes,
1: Juba II was a fine example of what the romans called the friendly and allied king when the roman empire began to expand it reached into areas that historically were not roman but had indigenous monarchies or an indigenous power structure and the romans developed a system where they would put monarchs in place that would be beholden to rome but at the same time have enough connections with their own region To keep the peace and to make the region prosper. And Juba II, who lived from about 45 BC until AD 23, is a good example of this phenomenon because he was placed on the throne of Mauritania, which is northwest Africa, essentially ancient uh, or modern Algeria and Morocco. He was placed on the throne of that region in 25 BC and spent the next 50 years, essentially as a native ruler, but working under Roman supervision.
0: Okay. What's known about uh, where he was born then? You mentioned um, when he was born, approximately, or that's certified. Do, Do scholars know where he was born?
1: Yes, that's a story in itself, because to the east of Mauritania, was an indigenous kingdom called numidia uh, it's mm-hmm. essentially much of modern tunisia and it too had its own monarchy that went back many generations and in the middle of the first century bc the king of numidia who is juba the first the father of juba the second became involved in the losing side of the roman civil war that was waging uh, raging at that time between Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great. And so when Juba the first was defeated, he committed suicide. Julius Caesar kind of swept up the members of his family and took them to Rome. And this included the infant Juba the And that was standard policy. Uh, the Romans picked up dispossessed royalty, brought them to Rome, and tried to turn them into their own image and often sent them back to their indigenous kingdoms to rule. So, Juba II was born 47, 46 BC, but by 45 BC, he still is an infant, is being raised in Rome.
0: Okay, and, and Numidia then was that moment um, was that the moment when Rome uh, annexed Numidia, if we can use that that term, or uh, was it already a provincial state? Was it already under hegemony of, of Rome uh, when no, Juba the no. first committed uh, suicide?
1: No, Numidia was an independent kingdom, but obviously politics being what they were, it was very much influenced by Rome. But when Juba the I was defeated, Rome then annexed Numidia and made it part of the province of Africa, which is the territory they had acquired around Carthage. A hundred years previously, so the province, the expanded province of Africa, is essentially modern Tunisia.
0: Okay, and some of this, uh, these items, I'll obviously know because we chatted um, for almost an hour on uh, uh, Cleopatra Selene the second, who ends up uh, marrying Juba the second. But someone might be listening to this episode for the first time and hadn't heard the previous episode so so i'll i'll ask uh this this qu- question so um so can you can you talk about what happens uh after juba the uh, second um uh after his father is defeated by rome what what happens next in juba the the uh, second's life
1: well he's taken to rome and we don't know exactly where he ends up in the short run Uh, presumably in the house of Julius Caesar, or one of his relatives. But of course, Caesar himself is eliminated within the year, the Ides of March of 44 BC. And eventually, as Caesar's grandnephew Octavian, the future Emperor Augustus, emerges as the power in Rome, Juba II ends up in the household of Octavian's sister, Octavia, who seemed to have a penchant for raising royal refugees. And so he grows to maturity there. And the one thing we do know from his future career is that he received an excellent education. We don't know any details, but because he became a major scholar, he obviously had contact with the scholarly presence that was in Rome in the late 40s and the 30s BC. And growing to maturity in the house of Octavia, which you can still see the ruins of today on the Palatine Hill in Rome.
0: Okay, and uh, before we continue with um, the the chronology of his life, I want to I want to go back to his parents. So you mentioned Juba the uh, first. Do scholars know anything about his mother?
1: No, we don't. Uh, women, as we know, tend to be very invisible unless they're very prominent. Uh, We don't know anything about the women of the royal family of Numidia, except in a couple of small exceptions. It's possible there was some Greek blood in the family. Uh, That's speculation, but these fringe rulers often tended to take Greek wives. But his mother, as with so many, must remain totally anonymous.
0: What's known or inferred about his, the the language or languages, he would have been speaking when he arrived at Rome?
1: Well, his native language would have been what we might call Numidian, but essentially was the Phoenician Punic language of Carthage. But he was only maybe a year or two old, so we don't know really at this time how fluent he would have been. But, of course, when he came to Rome, he would have learned Latin and Greek because Greek is the language of scholarship. And any scholars that he worked with uh, would have essentially known Greek. And we know that he wrote in Greek. So he probably he certainly was bilingual, Greek and Latin, and probably eventually picked up some of the indigenous North African languages, which might have been useful to his later scholarship.
0: Okay. Okay. Um nothing, nothing exists in terms of any writings that he did as a, as a youth?
1: Nothing that he wrote survives completely. We just have quotations by later people, but there, there are some works that sound like they're young works. One is a book on the antiquities or the history of Rome, which is a topic that sounds like the kind of thing somebody who was very young and trying to break into the scholarly world might have written. And it would have been, I expect, highly derivative, not terribly innovative. And and many other people were writing a similar kind of work at the time, some of which survives. Uh, That's certainly one work. Another work that we have is he wrote a work on linguistics on the Latin language, uh, which again is the kind of thing that a young scholar might do. Uh, Linguistics was not a developed discipline. in ancient times, and uh, people used whether or not words sound alike and things like that. But still, it's another example of, of perhaps an early work that he wrote before he left Rome.
0: The late antiquities. Um, is there is there enough information about it? Do scholars know what he was getting at with that writing? Was it a was it a um, Uh, was it a contemporary piece? Was it a history piece? Is there anything known about the the type of uh, uh, piece that was?
1: Well, we have about a dozen fragments, and uh, that is quotations by later authors, and some of them go back to the very founding of Rome, like relative to Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome, Hmm. and uh, some deal with the... uh, history of Italian cities and towns. It's, it's very hard to reconstruct it because as I said, we only have about a dozen quotations and it's only said to be two books long, which is not terribly long. So I, I think it's, as I said, it's the kind of derivative work a young person would do, but he may have attempted to uh, cover the whole range of Rome from Romulus and Remus to his own day. Uh, we, we just really don't know. And the only fragments that survive are probably where he makes a point that couldn't be found by anybody else making the same point.
0: Okay. And uh, in this context, when, when someone's written a book, how, how, how big would that be in terms of books that we're, we're used to in contemporary times?
1: Well, uh, a book in antiquity basically means what can fit on a scroll. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the breaks are done in the medieval manuscript tradition. Sometimes they were done by the author. But two books would not be a very long work. Uh, A a modern volume uh, might be equivalent to five or six ancient books. So it's a thin work for the vastness of its topic. But that's what young scholars do. Uh, We've all been there, Mm -hmm. you know, our ideas kind of run beyond our ability to implement them. And so you can see this guy, you know, maybe as a late adolescent or something like that, saying, I'm going to write the whole history of Rome, and then realizing he doesn't quite have the ability to do it, and ending up with a very slender history of Rome that would barely fill a modern book today
0: okay um, so let's go to uh, his meeting with his um, eventual uh, wife Cleopatra Cleopatra Cellini the uh, second can can you talk about what's known about how they how they met and um, and I did mention her name obviously in the in the introduction um, but can you share in a more, more of a summary way uh, who she was and how she got to Rome
1: okay when when uh... The Roman Civil War came to a crashing end in 30 B.C. with the defeat of Antony and Cleopatra by Octavian, the future Emperor Augustus. Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide but left a number of children. And again, following the same policy that had happened 15 or so years earlier with Juba, these children were brought to Rome. And the one that we're interested in, of course, is the only girl, Cleopatra Cellini. And she too would have ended up in the house of Augustus's sister, Octavia, and and this would have been 30 BC. She would have been about 10. Juba would have been about 16. But presumably growing up in the same household, they obviously got to know each other relatively quickly and uh, we can only speculate exactly what happened, but certainly they were thrown into close proximity from a relatively early age.
0: Okay, and so, and so they get they get married. So, can can you speak about if it's inferred if it was a um, an arranged marriage and what was the what was Rome? What was the state of Rome's uh, in, intentions in in all this? Did they have a say? Because obviously, and we're going to get there soon. Juba gets back. He he ends up going to Mauritania um, with Cleopatra Selene. So, in your answer, can you also speak about what the the goals of Rome probably was uh, in the in the union of these two people?
1: In 30 BC, of course, the civil war, which had raged intermittently for a century, was at an end. Uh, Nobody really knew that at the time, of course, but it was necessary for Augustus to start a policy of rebuilding and reconstruction. And one of the things he had to do with was to deal with these royal children that were growing up in his household. Another thing he had to do was organize some of the territories that had fallen to Rome in the last couple of decades. Now, Egypt had been turned into a province and essentially was out of the picture at this time. So Cleopatra Cellini could not be returned to Egypt, but she was a formidable personality. She she was the daughter of a long lineage of royalty and of Mark Antony from a famous Roman family. So she had to be dealt with. Juba, on the other hand, was also a person of importance, a descendant of famous royalty. So a natural meeting of the two connection between the two was there and so they were brought together they were married and i i suppose it was an arranged marriage but again these people have grown up together they, they certainly knew each other it's not like they met for the first time on their wedding day so they were married about 25 bc and then a decision had to be made what to do with them Juba could not be sent back to Numidia because that was now a Roman province. But west of Numidia was Mauritania, which was unorganized. Uh, The indigenous dynasty of Mauritania had died off in the previous decade, and nothing had been done about that because the Romans were occupied with what was happening in the eastern Mediterranean. So it seemed a very natural and obvious solution. In 25 BC, Cleopatra, Selene was 15, which is the age of marriage for the Romans. Juba was 20-ish or so. So marry them together, send them off to take care of Mauritania and turn it into an allied kingdom with these two children, not children anymore, young people who have very distinguished lineage but essentially have become Roman in many ways.
0: So Mauritania, and you did um, mention a little bit about it uh, earlier. Can can you describe uh, in a, on a map today its its uh, demarcation because um, it probably doesn't exactly follow the exact outlines of contemporary countries. And c- can you also describe, uh, Dwayne, what the um, uh, what the political uh, milieu? Um, would have would have been uh, in that uh, in that territory at that point in time. We know Rome has control over it. so that's not quite what I mean, but what the actual milieu of the like the geopolitical milieu would would have been at that point in time?
1: Okay, well, actually, the modern countries do follow the ancient boundaries. interesting, okay. In this case because the French colonial officers saw themselves as the reincarnation of Roman proconsuls, Mm -hmm. and so modern Tunisia is the Roman province of Africa, and modern Algeria and Morocco is Mauritania, so the boundaries do conform. Now, as I said, Mauritania had its own indigenous dynasty, which goes way back, but for various reasons. The two kings that had been split into an eastern and western part, hence the division between Algeria and Morocco today. The two kings had died, one in the Roman Civil War, one naturally, and so there was nobody really in charge in Mauritania by the late 30s BC. But there was an increasing Roman mercantile presence crossing over from Roman Spain into Mauritania and into the town that is modern Tangier today, which was kind of the entry point to Mauritania from Spain. And presumably these Roman merchants were probably screaming to Rome saying, we need a government, we need somebody in charge, we need to be able to do our business, protect us from the barbarians. And so after an interregnum of five, six years in the 30s and early 20s, Augustus puts Cleopatra, Selene, and Juba II on the throne of a new kingdom of Mauritania and basically, presumably, says to them, straighten things out there.
0: This was probably the first time, uh, me presuming that uh, uh, a territory in the ancient period was different than contemporary times. Probably the first time on this episode, on this show after over 60 episodes where I got that wrong. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, although well, that, that those French colonial officers for you. The same thing is true with the uh east of this with modern Libya. That fa- follows ancient boundaries too.
0: Okay. Okay. So can you uh can you share more about what's known about uh Juba's uh reign as as king of Mauritania? We'll start with more his reign and and policies, what's known about policies and how he governed, and I do want to obviously get to some of his uh his writings as well in this conversation as a, as he, when he was an adult.
1: Okay. Well, Cleopatra, Selene and Juba were sent to a place called Yol, I-O-L, which was kind of a decayed Phoenician trading post. And they built it up into their new Royal capital. It's, it's in modern Algeria. And they named it, uh, Caesarea or Caesarea, depending on whether you want the Greek or the Latin form, which was the, uh, fashion of the day to name cities after the roman emperor and they built it into a new and innovative capital and so what the two monarchs had to do was basically keep the peace basically allow roman merchants and traders to flourish in the area and to create a state that was peaceful and prosperous but nevertheless had enough connection with rome that the powers in Rome did not see it as a threat to the overall integrity of the empire. And the the topography of North Africa is kind of in three parts. There along the coast is a fairly rugged coastal zone. And then there's a fairly fertile interior. And then beyond that is the Sahara Desert. And of course, there are all kinds of indigenous people scattered through this. So Juba had and Cleopatra had the very difficult policy of, ki- of keeping the peace, keeping the barbarians, if we'll use their term, from causing trouble. Yet at the same time, making sure that they, the monarchs, did not cause any trouble for Rome. And it's a very prosperous area. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, commodities, rich agricultural commodities, there's a purple dye industry on the Atlantic coast of Mauritania. The grain and other cereal products can be exported to Rome. So if handled properly, it can become a very flourishing part of the empire. And that's what the monarchs were able to do over the next decades.
0: How much um, in- influence would and presence would Rome have had in Mauritania. So, if somebody was there at this given time, uh, Juba is is uh, reigning and uh, with his wife Cleopatra Selene. Um, so, uh, how, what would be? Because this isn't a, pr- a province of Rome, not technically. So, if somebody was actually there, would they have seen Rome Roman presence in some some way? And and is there anything known about that? Uh, communication, that diplomatic communication that uh, Juba would have had with Rome throughout his reign?
1: Well, we expect that he went back to Rome because we know of two or three cases of members of his household who died in Rome. And of course, there would have been communication back and forth, but it was one of the few parts of the greater empire that the Emperor Augustus never visited. So that kind of tells us, that uh, things were running well and there would have been as i said traders and merchants in the cities who would have no official link with the government but as far as we know there was no official roman presence there mm-hmm. except from time to time if juba needed military assistance the uh, roman government for obvious reasons looked askance at these allied kings having their own large armies. Uh, They could be turned in the wrong direction, obviously. So in a couple of cases, when there was trouble on the southern frontier, Juba would ask for military assistance and the Romans would send a legion or two and a a Roman officer down. But that was basically a, a temporary process. If things are going well, as with anywhere, you don't really want an army hanging around. (laughs) And the fact that Augustus never visited the territory when he really went all over the remainder of the empire tells us that the monarchs in Mauritania were doing their job well.
0: Okay. What's known about his writings as as an adult?
1: Well, he continued to write, and actually we know from a single reference he wrote an autobiography, which we'd really love to have, but it's vanished completely. And his two most important works that he wrote late in life are called Libica, that is about Libya, which is the old Greek name for the whole continent of Africa, and on Arabia. He obviously had an inquiring mind, and he sent out explorations to go into his territory because very little was known about Mauritania except the narrow coastal strip and he sent an expedition that discovered some islands off the coast which seemed to have large dogs on them so he named them the dog islands which has evolved today into the modern name the canary islands Hmm. so that's one of the greatest survivals of the rule of juba that he discovered and named the canary islands Hmm. and he also sent botanical expeditions down into the atlas mountains which were life zones unique to uh, insofar as people from the Mediterranean knew. And his physician, a man named Euphorbus, discovered a new plant there that had medicinal properties. And so we still have the genus Euphorbia today, Spurge. So that's the other thing that survives, the Canary Islands and the botanical genus Euphorbia, which is a very widespread plant. And so he sent out these expeditions and he wrote a work, Libica, which essentially essentially was kind of an ethnographic and natural history compendium about North Africa uh, with his explorations with flora and fauna, with a certain amount of history. And it survives in a large number of rather lengthy fragments uh, from a scholarly point of view Some of the most important are about the now extinct North African elephant. And then later in life, he embarked on a journey to the east. And I might be getting ahead of myself here, but he wrote his work on Arabia. And so let me just kind of break it off there and we can move on from that point.
0: Yeah, do you want to cover? Do you want to cover that in a bit? We'll do it in the later period. Dwayne, is that yeah, what you're no, suggesting? Yeah,
1: it, it involves a change in his lifestyle, because as far as we can tell, Cleopatra Cellini died around five BC. That mm-hmm. is, she drops out of the record, and we have no further references to her. And we seem to have a eulogy that connects her death with the uh, with an eclipse of the moon. Cleopatra Cellini, Cleopatra the Moon. Juba, then perhaps with his kingdom secure, he'd been on the throne 20 years and feeling freer to move around, embarks on an expedition commissioned by the Emperor Augustus to explore the Arabian Peninsula. Augustus sent his grandson, whom we know as Gaius Caesar, to assert a Roman presence in the Arabian Peninsula, which was little known, but was the origin of great riches especially frankincense, myrrh, other things, the frankincense and myrrh of the Bible, all come from southern Arabia, essentially modern Yemen. And so Juba went on this expedition, and he may not have stayed for the entire expedition, but he ended up in Cappadocia, which is southern, south-central Asia Minor, where he married a woman named Glafora, named the daughter of the king of Cappadocia and he wrote his other great work called on Arabia which isn't only about Arabia but extends the Libyan work all the way to India and again it does not survive but was extensively quoted and is some of our best information on contacts between the Mediterranean world and India the uh, marriage of Glafara did not survive Uh, We think that Augustus took umbrage at a king of the west end of the empire marrying royalty from the east end of the empire that sounded like too much of a power base. And Juba goes back to Mauritania maybe about AD 5 or so and seems to spend the next 20 years of his life there not marrying again and probably working on his scholarship.
0: Okay. Um, When he was... On those expeditions, um, is there anything known about how Mauritania would have been governed in that period of time? And is it, is it reasonable to draw the notion that there was quite a lot of peace in that period of time if he had time to be traveling um, quite, quite far from Mauritania and spending time uh, writing, etc.?
1: Well, uh, yes, and obviously the situation in Mauritania was peaceful enough that he felt he could leave for several years. We don't know any details, but he probably had a well-positioned staff. Uh, His one son, Ptolemy, was probably too young to do anything official at that time because he's spoken of as a young man when Juba dies 20 years later. But he must have had a good, solid and loyal staff in place and of course this whole period in roman history after 30 bc is characterized by a great deal of peace Uh, there were troubles on the northern frontier uh, in in the north of the alps with the german territories but that was about the only place there were consistent problems obviously juba and cleopatra Selene had brought mauritania to a position of peace but we really don't know who was in charge when he was away, which seems to be a minimum of four or five years based on a few details we can pick up. But obviously with the marriage to Glafara failing, and as I said, we have reason to believe Augustus broke broke it up. It probably was strongly hinted to him that he would better get back to Mauritania and better be back in charge.
0: Okay. So his wife, his second wife, uh, never went to Mauritania?
1: No, she's a person we know something about, mostly because she married two different sons of Herod the Great, uh, not at the same time, one before Juba and one after Juba. And she was uh, an important royal woman of the era. I do discuss her in a chapter in my Cleopatra's Daughter book. But obviously, uh, she... And Juba did not connect for a, a long term and Glaffer survives and marries another son of Herod the Great and dies a few years later. Uh, she gets in trouble with Jewish law by marrying two successive sons of Herod the Great. There is a thing about you don't marry the brother of your uh, dead husband except under certain circumstances. So Glaffer has an interesting career of her own but she's out of it insofar as Juba is concerned after only a couple of years.
0: Okay. Um, so, Duane, can you summarize then, uh, is it, it, do scholars believe that he had two total marriages? Um, so can you con- confirm that? And uh, how many children are, are known uh, that Juba had and to which wives?
1: Well, the only child we know a lot about is Ptolemy, which is the son of Cleopatra Selene. And the fact that he was named Ptolemy, of course, gives us some indication of their thinking. Cleopatra Selene saw herself as her mother's heir and saw herself as the legitimate queen of Egypt. And she brought a lot of Egyptian art to Mauritania and Caesarea, which you can still see today. And so to name their only known son, after the dynasty of the historic dynasty of Egypt, tells us that there may have been some thinking, which probably would not have been expressed publicly, of restoring an Egyptian monarchy, but that never happened. And Ptolemy of Mauritania becomes king when Juba dies in AD 23 or 24 and rules for about 20 years, and nobody seems to like him. <laughs> You know, it's the classic case of the weaker son after a very capable father. But problems begin to erupt during those 20 years, and there are more incursions from the south. (coughs) There's more need for Roman help. Uh, Ptolemy is characterized as being weak and indolent. And eventually he's summoned to Rome in about A.D. 40, by the Roman emperor of the time Caligula who happens to be his cousin because Caligula is also a grandson of Mark Antony and Mm. something goes badly wrong and Ptolemy is executed in that particular year. Uh, We think it may be that he flaunted his royal ancestry in front of Caligula which was probably not the wise thing to do, as we all know, Caligula was a pretty crazy person, <clears throat> and so he is executed, and that brings the Mauritanian monarchy to an end. The Roman have Romans have to move in and provincialize it immediately. There is a reference to another a granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra, who would have to be a son of. Juba, or daughter rather of Juba and Cleopatra Selene, but we really know nothing about her except her name Drusilla, which is one of the titles of Livia, the wife of Augustus. But that remains an enigma.
0: Okay, um, you mentioned that uh, you mentioned Yol earlier. Is Yol um, uh, also known as Caesarea, right, as a term? Yeah. Okay, um, is is that what was considered his principal residence? And can you, can you take a moment to, this came up in our last episode, but I, so I wanna, I wanna make sure it's covered if applicable, um, certainly sounds relevant to Juba as well, um, what Juba's devotion to culture uh, and the arts would have been in his, his reign.
1: Well, he and presumably Cleopatra Cellini seem to have turned Yol into a proper royal capital, of Caesarea. It has innovative architecture and it's a wonderful archeological site today. Uh, It has the first Italian style theater outside of Italy. It has all kinds of remnants of other buildings and in the museum, the modern museum, there's all this sculpture that Cleopatra Cellini brought from Egypt, sculptures of pharaohs and sculptures of her mother presumably sculptures of her father as well. So they obviously turned it into a cultural capital and Juba would have had to have some kind of a library to do his work. So it became really a very important place in Northwest Africa, probably the most cultural and intellectually important place in Northwestern Africa. And it survived really for hundreds of years long after the monarchy as the major city of its region but there was really nothing there before the time of Juba and Cleopatra Cellini. so they really built it from nothing into a major city
0: okay what's, what's, uh, what's that area like uh, these days if uh, someone goes and visits
1: well it's hard to get a visa to go into Algeria but if one mm. does and I went there because I had some connections in the scholarly community Mm -hmm. it's typical mediterranean landscape with olive trees and and so forth Mm -hmm. and there's a modern town there named churchill which developed in medieval times but scattered through this whole area are a vast number of antiquities and there's this excellent museum one thing the french did in their colonial properties was to build excellent museums most of which still survive So you can really go go into the museum and get a real presence for the world of Juba and Cleopatra Cellini. You can see sculptural portraits of them. You can see sculptural portraits of her parents, all the Egyptian stuff and a vast amount of high quality Roman art. So obviously they imported first-rate artists. The fact they have a theater means that they had dramatic festivals juba seems to have written a fairly minor work on the history of the theater so it probably was the place to be if you were in northwest africa during the augustan period
0: okay uh some closing questions um did you cover uh his his writings sufficiently for this conversation do you think or was there anything else you wanted to add on the writings piece
1: no i think we covered uh, there's some odds and ends and uh that, that he wrote, little bits and pieces that are sometimes only mentioned in one particular place. Uh, mm-hmm. So we covered his juvenile works and we, we covered uh, his Libica and on Arabia. There is a hint that he wrote a work on Assyria, but that's only mentioned in a couple of places. And he may have written some poetry. We have at least one poem that he wrote. But again, People in antiquity wrote in everything. Uh, There wasn't the splitting up of genres that there is uh, today. And Mm -hmm. as I said, we know from one reference that he wrote an autobiography, which is one of the things we would miss the most, because that would fill in some of the gaps that we've found in our discussion today, like what happened during his trip to the East, what his Mm -hmm. education was, who he might have studied with things of that nature, but it's, it's a long bibliography and it's a pity that none of the works actually survives today. He was called the scholarly king, Rex Literatissibus in Latin.
0: Why, why do you think his works don't survive?
1: Well, we have to remember that in antiquity, that if you wanted a copy of a book, you literally had to make a copy or have someone make it for you. Mm-hmm. That is to copy it out by hand. and you know, mm-hmm. Think if you wanted something, doing all that work. So the number of copies was limited to begin with. And obviously there were issues of transportation. How did works get from one end of the empire to the other? <clears throat> Things would have been lost. Ships were sunk. And then especially in late antiquity and medieval times with the advent of Christianity, which brought about a fundamental change in the view of the world, things just didn't get copied. And there was a tendency that if a topic was discussed in one place, you didn't need somebody else's work on it. And as I said, we have extensive quotations from the Libica and on Arabia in people like Pliny and Strabo and natural history authors. So obviously there came a time that somebody said, oh, we don't need Juba's Livica anymore. <coughs> Excuse me, Pliny talks about all of that. And so things tend to disappear. And we just have a tiny fraction today of what survived from ancient writings. And when everything has to be copied down, by hand, generation after generation after generation. Mm. And we know of vast authors who wrote dozens of works, and not a word survives. That's just one of the things we have to deal with as classical scholars.
0: So, someone like um, Cicero, a lot of his writings are, are known in contemporary times. So, is it so when you have someone like Juba, who it, it seems like wrote a lot as well? In in a lot of cases, does it just boil down to someone else not rewriting his, his work?
1: Yes, yeah, scientific authors tend to have been particularly badly hit. Somebody like Cicero, because he was considered the model of the Latin language, survived because he was probably extensively used in schools. Hmm. And the same thing with some Greek authors. Homer, of course, everybody quotes Homer, and we have hundreds of manuscripts of Homer. But then when you get into the more esoteric scientific authors, they tend not to be copied after a while. And with historical authors, we we kind of have a continuum of ancient history. But often we have only one author surviving for a given period, when we know many people wrote about that period. So again, it's maybe the idea: oh, we have this person; we don't need anybody else. And given the great effort taking to keep these texts going, especially in medieval times, uh, it's just easier. Something gets tossed aside and is never seen again. Libraries were few, and even they. Were subject to the problems of copying. Manuscripts deteriorate quicker than, say, a printed book with covers.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, is anything known? And we're still in the closing uh, question segment here um, of our chat. Is is anything known about his uh, if he was religious and if so, what what was his religious orientation?
1: Well, religion. Before Christianity was a much more personal thing than it has been today. And presumably, he was aware of cultic matters and cults and so on. There would have been temples in Mauritanian Caesarea to the gods. I doubt if he kept anything about the indigenous Numidian religion, which would have been Phoenician Punic or something like that. He grew up in Rome. He would have been aware about Roman cults and Roman religion. He wrote in Greek, he traveled in the Greek world. But as I said, religion was a much more personal thing than today, but at the same time, things kind of spilled over into everyday life about, if you read Homer, you read about the gods and you read about their intervention in human affairs. Is that religious or is that just cultural history? It's sometimes hard to say, but I think the short answer to your question is, no, we really don't know anything about his personal religious sensitivities.
0: No matter how large or how um, small everybody's life makes makes a mark in some way, what do you think the, the mark or marks were that uh, Juba's uh, life made?
1: Well, he's the best example that we have in many ways of this friendly and allied king. He was someone who was taken from his homeland, raised in Rome, educated like a Roman, became a very excellent scholar, and then went back to Mauritania and upheld Roman ways and pacified the country for nearly 50 years. So he's a very important person in the era of the new roman empire the late first century bc and the early first century a.d and of course the scholarship even if it's fragmentary and exists only by quotations from others nevertheless is an important source of data for us especially about the southern extent of the empire from the atlantic ocean and mauritania all the way out to india And, of course, two specific survivals, as I mentioned, are his naming of the Canary Islands and his establishing, effectively, of the botanical genus Euphorbia.
0: Okay, thanks for coming back on the show, Duane. It's always enjoyable to speak with you.
1: Well, my pleasure to be here.
0: So, again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode Um, the first one, if you want to read up more on Juba II and his first wife, Cleopatra Cellini, it's titled The World of Juba II and Cleopatra Cellini, Royal Scholarship on Rome's African Frontier. The other book that I mentioned, um, is titled Cleopatra's Daughter and Other Royal Women of the Augustan Era. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Dwayne and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey.